We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Total Celebrity segment, and I'm excited to welcome the program Elise Braga of Queen of the South on USA Network. Elise, thanks for calling. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm good at yourself. I'm doing fantastic. And uh, wow, what a ride starting with I Am Legend to now and uh, the success of Queen of the South. You got to be really excited in your career and where it's going. It's very exciting. I mean, having the chance to do a show that is on its third season, I think I never thought that would be possible or to work with Will Smith as well. I never thought it would be possible. So it's just a dream come true. I think it's great to, to have the chance to play such different worlds. And, and now with with Queen of the South, to be able to play a character for more than, you know, two years is just so magical. It's great. It's very exciting. Well, it's definitely very exciting, especially as a Brazilian actress. Uh, I don't know all, uh, again, talking about Brazil. Brazil must be really proud of you, aren't they? Brazil is what? Proud of you. Proud of you, Elise, for your success. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, like, it's great to, to be able, when I come back home, to see people feeling that they're proud and that they, they, they love that I kind of bring the flag abroad. It's very exciting, and, and I really still work in Brazil because of that, because I do believe it's great to bring back some stuff that I learned in the U.S., to the industry here. I think it's always very special. So let's talk about Queen of the South real quick, Lisi, and talk about specifically, you're the main character in this story, and it's based on a book. So tell us uh, the premise of the show. Um, the show starts with uh, Teresa Mendoza, which is my character, running for her life. She dates a drug dealer who gets killed, and therefore people start running for her because she knows a lot. So she starts to go on the run and by her uh struggling to survive she knows she realizes that there's once you're in this business there's no way out right so the show is a lot about her journey of discovering um how to survive in this business but also how to build a business of her own and becoming this powerful ceo of the drug world and is this a true story or just based on a book or is it a true story of this woman it's based on a book. Uh, the premises started with the book, and then um, it was decided just to create a new journey for the character. But, but it's based on uh, Arturo Perez Rivera's book, and probably like some characters that he learned, he, he 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 got to know throughout his life. But but I do believe it's it's, it's only based on the book. Okay, so your character has to learn this business and how challenging this business is to be a woman running it, right? And that's what the whole story is going to be about yeah, in, the, in the journey. And how did you prepare for this character, especially looking at someone as powerful as this character is compared to some of the other characters you've played in your career? I really, I tried a lot because I'm a huge fan of the book. I read the book 10 years ago, so when they invited me to jump on this project and to to participate, um, I really uh, got excited because my passion for the journey of the character was so strong that I decided to just follow the book. So even though we're not following exactly what the storyline from the book is, I try to understand a lot from the, the, the spine of the character and who she is in the book and try to apply the situation that she's in 
uh, with that soul, with that mindset. So mainly I, I, I base myself on the book, but also I prepared a lot, trying to understand how, for example, strong female leads work all over the world, being either a CEO of a company or right. how to empower themselves. I think those kind of inspiration, and especially nowadays that this is so much in discussion, yes. it's been great because I think the character for her to survive into this world, she had to be a very powerful, strong woman. And finding that was my, 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 my nicest you know, challenge. We're talking to Lisi Braga here on the Neil Haley Show about Queen of the South on the USA Network. And Lisi, looking at, you know, particularly your character from the first season now to the third season, how has she grown and what should we expect this season? It's interesting because season one was a lot about her running for her life. Season two was about her understanding her role into this business and how she would have to behave and, and be involved. And, and maybe trying even to escape once again. And then season three is a lot about her empowering herself, her yes. being in charge of her own life and her own destiny and her own choices, where to go, how to deal with, and how to, 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 to survive, but to, to empower herself. So season three is a lot about being in charge of her own destiny. Very, very interesting in her whole, her own destiny, but that could end up uh, hurting herself real bad, end up in jail. So we just don't know what's going to happen with this character, especially the crazy business she's in, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, like you never know what's going to happen. There's so many twists. Uh, it's such, such a like such a violent and also dangerous world that at any point something can go wrong. And I think that's what the fans love because it brings a lot of action and a lot of you know, drama into every scene and every situation. And Elisa, you also have other projects going on as well, right? Correct? For our fan, for your fans, that's going on, not just Queen of the South, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I did um, I did a film that's still to come out. It's called New Mutants. It's a spin-off from the X-Men world. Uh, it's going to release next year, and it's very exciting because I was always a big, big fan of... Uh, the X-Men um, movies and, and cartoon and, and, and graphic novels, but um, uh, that one, and also I have a production company in Brazil called Los Dragas that I have with my sister and uh, my best friend, and we're oh, producing wow. two Netflix shows for Latin America, which is great, and I'm developing another project for myself as an actress, but also reading a couple of scripts in the U.S., so I'm kind of back, like back and forth between in front of the camera and behind the camera, which is exciting. I love that. And see, see, as you're an entrepreneur because of all those other things, so that helps your character more and more understanding the meetings and the strong-willed character that you have to be in your business in Brazil to exactly what your character is in Queen of the South in certain ways, just a little different business, oh, but yeah. the, the really, <laughs> really a relationship of entrepreneurship in two different ways for sure. So can Continued success, Alicia, and where can we combine info on you? Best place. Are you on social media? People can connect with you there. What social media can we connect with you? I am on Instagram. My Instagram is Alice Braga underline um, official. 
and I don't have Twitter. I'm still in the 80s. I'm horrible with social media, but I love Instagram because I love pictures. So I would love for you to follow me there. Oh, you're fabulous for sure. We'll definitely uh, check you out. And again, Thursday nights, Queen of the South on USA Network. So, Alice, thanks for calling and thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show in the total celebrity segment. And I want to know this story and it's very interesting. I might have my co-host show up today, but if he doesn't, that's always the fun thing about this. I am wiped out today with recording television and radio all day. I might end up with eight interviews in one day. I've done it before. I've done like 15 or 17 of the Miami book fair, but on in quarantine, I don't know. But I'm excited to welcome to the program Greg Ellis. We know him from Pirates of the Caribbean, Titanic, and many others. Uh, Greg, thanks for stopping by today. Uh, thanks for having me, Neil. And listen, I can step in to do a little co-hosting if, if you need some of that. Hey, we, 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 to, uh... we, we need to collaborate. <laughs> we need to collaborate. I always need co-hosts, especially when people know show. And, and I'm sure you've seen in this, uh, the pandemic world that everyone now is a podcaster, a radio host, everything. I've done this for 10 years. I've done independently over not over like 6,000 plus interviews, celebrity interviews, maybe 800, 900. And I've learned it and learned the business. And I watch all these people thinking they just can be me. I'm happy podcasting's where it is and radio, but I'm ultimately thinking it's going to get too oversaturated with the pandemic, Greg, right? Well, I think part of the challenge, of course, with the pandemic, I talk about the panic-demic, yeah. you know, how we can tend to the psychological and the behavior, how we can work through our new virtual workflow systems with people who, you know, are at home and forced to work from home. And like you talk about wiped out doing so many interviews through the day, how you can adjust and modify that and how we can, how we can turn to the, the message that we're putting out there. You know, one of the things I heard early on uh, from the government was this message of social um, distancing. And, and, and I frankly, wholeheartedly disagree with that my message would be physical distancing with social connectedness yes. and podcasts and radio and bringing some of the old school back remembering the traditions of radio from the past and um and bringing them into the present and moving them forward one of the things i'm doing with my new show the respondent is to take the podcast format make it a video cast format with video and podcast and not just your traditional video podcast which has become the norm like your dave rubens and your uh your, your joe rogans where it's a sit-down interview right. actually incorporate elements from television series and broadcast network production values that's what i'm striving to do with the respondent and see but greg you're you're a brand you've been in you uh you've had success as an actor you you do one that's fine but joe schmo down the street different story. And I love the, your creativity. You are doing what I did 10 years ago. We talked off air at two, three hours sleep. I lived it and I have a t-shirt to prove it, Greg. At this point, thank goodness, I don't have to do some of that stuff. I've become better, smarter, didn't interview everyone, tried to, you know, all the different bells and whistles. Hey, let's make it happen. But that's the process. We're going to take you back to this whole great podcasting idea. But I got to go back to you, your story. What do you think you're best known for as an actor? Who do they remember? Who remembers you the most from what role? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think 
many people remember me from 24, uh, which, uh, you know, ironically, I played Michael Amador in season three, who was a virus broker. He was the broker, oh, the broker of the Cordella virus, not the coronavirus. <laughs> um, go back and watch season three. That'll be a that'll be a trip down memory lane that has uh, meaning in the present. Uh, I think Pirates of the Caribbean is a big one because, you know, being in the first, third and fourth movie, um, with it being such a such a success as that, you know, video games. It's uh, I tend to I have a group of uh, they're called Colonites. The character I play on uh, Dragon Age, which is a successful three uh, three game series. There's, there may be a fourth. Um, it won Game of the Year, I think, a few years ago. So uh, voice wise, it's that. And um, you know, sometimes I get randomly noticed from TV, whether it's X Files or CSI or NCIS or Hawaii Five O. Um, you know, there's a myriad of places. I'm just, I'm just grateful that I'm still in this business. And, you know, you talked about the Joe Schmo on the street who doesn't know. I think that we look to the younger generation who grew up with this age of technology and social media. Sometimes I call it anti-social media because it certainly doesn't, um, doesn't propagate this more civil discourse. They know the tricks and the tools. They're the ones that know the algorithms. And, and so it's a combination of the old school who've been in the business a while and these younger new innovators who are really pushing the limits and the levels of having their own studios on some of the platforms. Yeah, and that's the key thing. You're, you're, you've hit the nail on the head is the, the basically um, all these different things you've evolved through. You talk about the evolution of specifically video games and being a character in video games. Did you ever think that, Greg, when you started to act that you would be involved in voiceover types of stuff and all these other things that have developed? No, no I'm sure I grew up in a... I grew up in a small town in Northwest England, a little village called Ainsdale, and the town was called Southport. And it was a sleepy seaside town, and we had video game arcades. And I used to go, and my misspent youth was spent in front of stand-up, in front of stand-up video games. And I would play them, and I actually worked out, I wanted to I wanted to be really good at one of them, and it was Defender, and Asteroids, and Dig Dug, and Scramble, and Gorf, and all these games. And I was like, Pac-Man, that's the one I can learn the pattern. So when I was 13, I think I was 13, I actually achieved the world record score at the time on Pac-Man. And now you cut to these days with the virtual world and the games which are so, it used to be just one joystick and now you've got 20 keypads on one key stick. And or I'm probably using this, you know, I'm dating myself with the, with the wrong verbiage there. But you disappear into this virtual world and I think part of the challenge with device dependency and the dopamine hits of social media and the chemical imbalances in all of us but particularly the younger generations the gen z's and millennials who've grown up with this technology and know it better than you and i and people of older generations is how do we tend to that how do we actually make them realize that there is a line between reality and virtual and i think that it's even harder when you escape i think there's a disconnect maybe sometimes with people feeling like look every i i believe everyone's struggling with something you know, and yes. this disconnect with, with social distancing, you know, not physical distancing. This is, this is terrible. And social connectedness. Yeah, we need to and, be and, get, and, and yeah. this is why I think suicide rates are on the rise. Yeah. I think divorce rates are on the rise. Young, our younger generation have many more challenges to deal with and cope with in the technological age. And I think it's harder for them to, it's, it's too easy for us as, as, as the elders of the, you know, they say becoming older is inevitable, becoming an elder is a skill. You know, it's too easy for us to say what, what my parents and grandparents used to say in our generation, oh yeah, the youth today, they don't know they were born. Oh good, really. No, we are responsible for tending to that. The older generation, we need to be the shepherds, the mentors, the, the guides, the, and we also need to be able to learning. 
you know, to fail all the time because F-A-I-L, first attempt in learning. We need to learn from each other and tend to this behavioral diaspora so that we can be in a better place because let's be frank, the social media commentary, the mainstream media oh, commentary, gosh. the political commentary, it is so shame, rage, cyclical and toxic. I call it the human kryptonite. Everyone's arguing and the loudest, angriest, negative voices are being heard the most. So it's so lovely to be on a show that has a bit of positivity about it, <laughs> which you obviously do. I do always have positivity because guess what? It's a different thing. I'm interviewing you just because I enjoy it and getting paid for it's just after that the, the uh you know thing and it helps my brand and it helps my businesses that hey look at me today and i hate to name drop but i interviewed suzanne summers tommy davidson and uh, eric roberts today i mean you can't beat that in, in any time of day and it's basically i've grown to get to that point and that level but it you you could have me not be paid at all to do that and i got paid for it so go 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 figure right that's well, something Alan that, Watts, there's a great philosopher called alan watts and he, you know, look him up. I think he's probably the greatest philosopher of the 21st century, arguably. Uh, and he said, if you can figure out a way or find a job to get paid to play, then you've cracked it. And I think that's it. If, if you can be curious and interested and enjoy and keep that, so keep returning and rejuvenating that sense of enjoyment and emergence of how you can become, you know, better at what you're doing and give back as well. I think that's key. You know, it's not what can I get from this business. Many times it's shifting the over the, over the Rubicon or through to what can I give back? How can I give back? What projects can I be involved with that speak to the bigger picture that aren't just about me, 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 money, 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 ratings, ratings. So Ray, this started out, I'll talk two backgrounds. One background is I was a former professional wrestler. So basically I understood specifically, I always when I walked away to become a teacher was the hardest thing in the world. I was in Bremen, mm. Germany in 1999, close to the, maybe getting to the WWE, right? I was at this prep and I decided to have a family and settle down and not travel. So I walked away from wrestling. Hardest thing I've done in my whole life. It was the best thing I did, but now the door could be opening up to a comeback. I'm 47. So you don't give up, especially when you have contacts and different things. But I became a teacher and through that, became an education show the education show evolved to entertainment and everything but i believe i educate my audience based on the questions i ask because i want people to learn and learn a story every interview i do depending if it's six minutes 30 minutes 50 minutes but i love the, i love that the, I, I i love that format i have to say i love that format it reminds me of you know socrates the great philosopher and philosophy broken down in etymology is philo sophia devotion to wisdom and knowledge how can we devote ourselves to those people who like you change their career paths their life paths to give back to educate to share their knowledge and then combine that with the the, the notion that there's a dialectic so if we ask the meaningful question um, the, the thesis, if you will, and then we, we pose the anti-thesis, we give the answer to that meaningful question, we will arrive at where, Neil? Synthesis. Yeah. We actually go deeper into oh understanding gosh, meaning. And, 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 and if, we can all, if we can all delve into the dialectic more with more asking more why questions, you know, he, he or she who has a why can bear any how, I think it was Rumi said, we can get to this place where we can we can all become urbane pioneers meaning seekers and further extend our collective presence you're so deep in that and that and when i talk about specifically enough teaching others i allow other people to be co-hosts and it's probably one of the only people that does this and they learn through my production and producing of coming up with the questions and i just come up with follow-up questions greg i honestly don't 
I just prepare, read the bio of the person and I know how to interview them. It's that kind of level where I hear the answer to a question and the direction we're going. And that's the direction we're going. And not a lot of people, don't, a lot of people don't understand that they really don't. I think, you know, when I, when I, I created a model of coaching so I could give back and I call it a life coaching. I talk about the best life coach you'll ever meet is yourself. And I think there are many business plans and gurus out there who are selling their life coaching brands. And what I say is ABC, the ABC of a life coaching is a art in flow and art in flow is how we can get the performer or artist or speaker, whoever that is to, um, to flow in a place where we let the imagination effortlessly take over. And then the B is the business of show and how you can how you can create a revenue stream within your business model, whatever that is. And the C is crafting process and that's technique and moving through technique to not become a master, just become more masterful of the techniques and learn from the process and the processes of, the, of some of the masters and the greats that we've worked with in your field. I'm sure there's people, you know, when you were wrestling that you looked up oh, to yeah, and others definitely. who looked up to you, you know. So um, yeah, how how you can how you can keep improving? I think, yeah, that's and also true. I think yeah. with, with no, you're absolutely right. It's the process in so many ways, and I ha- know that my co-host has a question, Christopher Boland. That's his celebrity segment. Go ahead, Chris, and ask Greg a question just to give you a kind of feedback of what's happened today. We've just been basically just talking like friends, Greg and I. We really haven't talked about anything. So ask some hard nosed questions for Greg now. <laughs> <laughs> hey Greg. Do this, Chris. Hey Chris, how are you? Oh wonderful. It's great to meet you on the phone here. Um, nice to meet you too. I love that accent. Where are you from, Chris? Uh Birmingham, Alabama. I was in Birmingham, Alabama a couple of maybe three years ago. I was at the Civil Rights Museum and on the corner of the uh, 16th Street uh, Baptist Church. I was doing an interview, live interview. I'd requested to do it there. A convention was started about a video game called Dragon Age. And I was chatting with some of the homeless uh, people there. And I pulled this homeless guy into uh, an interview and gave him some press. Um, But I love Birmingham, Alabama. It's a very rich, beautiful place. So anyway, ask your question, Chris. This is Chris question time. That's right. Well, you know, uh, I'm sitting here and, and, and looking at all the things that you've done, and I, and I think about some of the movies on the bigger budget movies. How, how hard is it to act when you do a lot of sci-fi in a movie where you have a lot of green screen and you have to kind of imagine what's supposed to be going on around you? And, you, and then the follow-up to that is, you know, how does it – is it weird to see it after the the product is finished? Yeah, really good question. Wow, there's a lot of stories that, that come to mind when you ask me that question. Two movies come to mind, Pirates of the Caribbean and Star Trek. So I'll start with Star Trek. When we filmed Star Trek, it was, uh, I think it was soon after, maybe Cloverfield came out, but there was this new model of keep everything secret about the story and the characters and the brand. And I remember the day that John Cho and Chris Pine and I filmed uh, the skydive sequence, we actually filmed it over a multiple of weeks. Um, the space dive platform, we, we dove down to the uh, Vulcan uh, platform. And it was a myriad of different uh, setups. And one of them was filming in, on the Paramount lot. It used to be called the, the car park or the parking lot below the water tower. And there were mirrors down. So JJ had, this is the beauty of the creation of his mind. 
yes, we did a lot of special effects. Yes, we had a special camera that I sat on right in the face of and it swirled around and made me look like I was going through space as they filmed the sky behind me. Yes, I hung from wires upside down and the blood rushed to my head on sound stages. But the one day when I was lowered onto this pristine, clean, mirrored, mirrored um, floor on the lot of Paramount, and JJ and the film crew and the camera crew were on a raised platform. I would say it was about five feet, six feet above me with the camera looking down. But because the camera was looking down at my head, my neck craned back, the mirrors reflected the sky. So then JJ shaking the camera and I'm going, 500 meters, 200 meters. It's like, keep going, another take. So, so imagining in that sense wasn't too difficult because I was looking at the sky and I was wearing the, you know, the, the skydive suit. There are other times like Pirates, I remember Pirates 3, was it 3? Yeah, I think it was Pirates 3 on location in the Caribbean with, um, with Tom who plays Cutler Beckett, Lord Cutler Beckett in the, in, the, in the Pirates movies. And there was a scene that kind of had an homage to the first movie where I say, that's got to be the best pirate I've ever seen. <laughs> and in the third movie, Chris, thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it was, you know what, I was talking about that. We, we had no idea. You have no idea. They do these market, market screen, test screenings and audience screenings, and they rework the cut and the edit, and you never know. You have a good idea, I think, as a writer and director, of which movie lines are really going to hit. Like the audience will, you'll get that laugh, you'll get that shriek of horror. And that line, that sequence that started out with Jack Davenport saying, as the Commodore saying, that's got to be the worst and worst pirate I've ever seen. And then that longing at the end of that sequence, that's got to be the best part. That's got great test scores and people loved it. So, so cut to the third movie. And of course, they, they play on this. They build the character, my character, Lieutenant Commander Gross, to a point where... You know, I'd imagine that I, I was the one member of the Royal British Navy who'd longed to be a pirate, who'd longed for the freedom of the seas and not that responsibility, the confines, the, the uniform and, and the heat on the deck and the buckled you know, platform shoes and the austerity of um, discipline and regimented orders. So I, was, I did the take, uh, the rehearsal with, uh, with Tom and, and the director, Gore Verbinski, and I said, uh, I think I, I, look as the, I look over my shoulder as the mast breaks and slowly comes down and hits the water as Jack Sparrow is making way on his on the ship um, and and the, after the first take Gore came over and he said great okay so and this is how fast things move on, on big big budget pictures people think it's slow moving it's hurry up and wait you know and then and then it's like we're ready let's go and it's over it was okay so when you look over your shoulder do it at beats earlier lift your um chin up by about 20 degrees the mast is about 30 percent higher when you're following it down i want your eye line to follow it it's taking three seconds now maybe make it 3.5 and when it hits the water shudder a little bit with your shoulders and when you turn back give it a beat and look camera left and just give it that pace post that we had in the first movie okay ready Okay, first position, slice, <laughs> camera, action. And that, that, that doesn't add pressure to the already fact of getting your lines right, does it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but that's part of the excitement, of the crackle of, of the moment and, and the trust of movie making. And you don't necessarily know how it's going to turn out. Like Star Trek, you mentioned, you know, do I see it? I remember walking, I was out one night, Star Trek had just come out, we'd done a premiere, I think on a Thursday or Friday maybe, and it was at the Cinerama Dome and I was walking by and, and I just wanted to see just an audience reaction to the movie. So I, I went in with a friend of mine, stood at the back, 
Um, and the reaction to that movie was, it was like being connected to the fans. You know, I'd always been a Star Wars fan growing up. Star Trek, even though I did the last two episodes over at Deep Space Nine, um, that was really my kind of entry and entree into the Star Trek world and the reimagining of Star Trek. And yes. I have to say, I was I felt so blessed and honored to be a part of not only Pirates of the Caribbean and great ship movies like that and Titanic, but also, you know, the Star Trek universe with the oh, Trekkies yeah. and yeah, you'll always and stay the red shirt. You'll always stay employed, Greg, because once people forget about you and everything else, at one point you just just Trekkie conventions till you were till <laughs> until you die. That's the truth. <laughs> You know, well, with that being said, do you feel like um, that you've been, you know, been fortunate in in the fact that you've you've been able to do a lot of great work that that really connects to people? So you have an opportunity to not only just do your craft and do your art, but you 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 can actually have a chance to really see how people react after the fact, you know, watch them from a distance and, and get and get that that feedback from them. Yeah, it's been it's 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 such a gift. You know, I was saying with with Neil earlier to get paid to play. Yes. And you know, show business is tough. It's oh, yeah. not. I'm not saying it's easy. You just walk out and go, oh, hey, I want to be an actor. I'm going to do a movie. I'm going to do this. There is a process that you have to go through. There is, you know, there are there are certain steps along the way to earn your rights of passage. And you know, um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, like the fans that I have, the people that 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 support me. The characters that I've played in video games, in cartoons, on television, in movies—you know—I feel very blessed. I call myself a you know jack of jack of all trades and, and and learning the mastery of some, you know. And and I like to dip into many different projects and mediums yeah. and keep it fresh. Greg already wants a job with me, so he already said that. Hey, on the yeah. interview. He wants to be my co-host. I've told him I have hundreds of co-hosts, and he said, oh, I want to be with you. Greg, we'll have to hook up and have come up with a collaboration, especially during the pandemic. You maybe can sure. make, we, we'll bring up all the top actors. You and I can interview Johnny Depp, right? That That's what's going to make it happen, right, Greg? Let's well, all the, 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 the temporary <laughs> triage of uh, at the start of the show is really just to step in and say look we can co-host this together i can stay you know whatever you need i'm malleable and you talk about johnny depp look my my project the respondent i have to talk about it launched a few yes. weeks ago it's a video podcast series um and you know the respondent means to me it means less reactivity more responsibility we're more we're all response able and we should be more responsible and less reactive and negative how we can be more positive it's also the word used when you are hit with a legal complaint uh by a plaintiff or petitioner and how you get tagged as the respondent what johnny's going through in the high court right now um, him being written out as well. The the sixth pirate movie is Jack Sparrow. See, I didn't know that. So thank you for Star that Trek. news. Thank you for you that don't news. Right, yeah. you don't make you don't make a, a, a franchise finishing or building on the sixth, rounding it off, a movie on Star Trek without Captain Kirk. So all of these themes I talk about in the show. Stephen Fry was on episode one this Sunday. I have what I call the solid silver bullets, um, and. I have, I talk with, uh, I basically reveal Amber Heard's strategy, the silver bullet playbook. I talk about in detail what happened, um, how it happened, how it is happening. And it's a model that's being used way too often and it's destructive to our families, um, to our, our, our children predominantly. And the system 
needs to change. That system of, of law and governance, the code of family code, needs a bit more piratical code. We need to reform it and bring to light some of these um, tragedies and salvage some of this so that parents and the, the family, the familial uh, tending to the broken tapestry of what family means to us in the personality of America and society and start championing. You know, we talk about pirates hoist the colors high. Yes. You know, let's start championing the, and being advocates for and agitating the system so that we can improve um, rather than decline, uh, you know, and, 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 and maybe it's a multimedia conversation. My book comes out um, on the 23rd right. on, the, on Thanksgiving, specifically I pick Thanksgiving just just because I'm I'm a sucker for really fast deadlines and being under pressure, but because it's Thanksgiving is about bringing family together, awesome. and that's the essence of what the respondent is. I think we need to come together more as a family. I think as a as a society, as a collective society within our relationships, interpersonally and friendships, and the more we can do that, so. You know, the season finale is November 22nd, 1 p.m., live simulcast on all platforms, exclusive on ThinkSpot. It's available on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the regular platforms. And there is a Q&A after each episode as well, so the, the conversation gets continued. This Sunday I have Professor Janice Fiamingo, who's be, she's brilliant. She rarely does interviews, and she is you know sociology uh, professor, I believe. And... Um, and we talk about cancel culture and some of the more negative aspects of uh, toxic femininity because we've heard so much in the media about smashing the patriarchy and what does that mean do we respond by saying smash the matriarch uh, matriarchy we've heard so much about me too yes. can we get a little bit more men too yeah. we've heard a lot about toxic masculinity can we get some tonic masculinity yeah. that's, that's great Let's, yeah, and that's a that's a pretty brave that's a pretty brave platform in today's in today's climate to even take, and I commend you on that. I was having a conversation previously before I was talking to you about how um, the breakdown of a lot of things that are going on is 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 something that that has been building up for a long time, and it and it goes it goes from quick gratification all the way out to. Um, unrealistic expectations to to many other things and, and it sounds like that that's something that you're, you're an avenue you're going down awesome yeah yeah i mean most of us are vaguely familiar with stories of family breakdown or familial breakdown we have a friend or family member who's endured a breakup it's a common trope in our dramatic and comedic entertainment uh, areas and reliable fodder for the TMZs and supermarket yeah. tabloids. So the truth is at a time when modern fathers and modern men and modern masculinity and parents and families are being bombarded by these messages of the deeply corrosive effects of toxic, toxic masculinity, we need to find a way that we can speak up. Um, it, you know, it reminds me of the phrase, speak up and risk something. Speak up and risk something. Remain silent and risk something else. Pick your poison. So, Chris, thank you for saying that in terms of being involved. Because cancel culture, I tweet, I retweeted Ayahashi Ali last week, who retweeted J.K. Rowling because J.K. Oh. Rowling is encouraging young children to post that. She's posting their illustrations, seven, That's six, five-year-old children, and building their confidence yes. and giving them a platform. And I was accused of being a transphobe. <laughs> oh my there's nothing more ridiculous in my life i'm like go ahead go, and Not, go, go so, ahead cancel so, me deplatform me so greg instead well, of saying i'll say neck our next co-host interview greg is going to be i'm already booking it instead of we'll go with leonardo dicaprio okay you'll make it happen greg i know you will 
I think it's, I think it's, um, um, to, to take a half step back and, and what you were just saying is I was listening to another, another person, another uh, person of, of, of fame and, and, and they were saying that the problem that you run into is if you're quick to apologize for something, even though, you know, you didn't really do anything wrong to, in order to, uh, appeal to a, a group, um, they, they tend to take more than, than your apology and they know that it's not a, a genuine apology and and you t- if you if you typically own it you know whatever that thing that they're mad about is it's usually less canceling and less devastating well i think we've arrived at a place in our culture uh, and we've been there for a while now where the apology pathway has been blocked that people who even look we are all human we all we all have skeletons we've all made mistakes we have to be mindful of the context of the times that we lived in and the ever-changing times and technology and language and communication how it's it's just exponentially raced away and within our culture and how we're all interconnected through technology and you know seeing people who you can't win the oppression olympics you know i talk about identity politics and political correctness with stephen fry and we're in agreement it's call me what you want give me whatever name or yourself identity label you want it's how we treat each other as human beings that matters at the end of the day you know that's what matters how are we behaving towards our fellow man and fellow woman how can we imbue a sense of kinship of, of, of listening with curiosity and sharing to be known um, and, and have more discourse and be able to be critical thinkers but not go to the critical all the time and hypercritical or hypocritical. Yes. There is so much criticism in society and I just made a decision recently that, you know what, when cancel culture came after me and they've written, you know, they've written, you know, when I say they, I'm talking about it's usually the small very vocal um, speech police minority who interpret or misinterpret or perceive you to be something they know not based on 140 characters on a screen. Um, and then they, they, you know, petitions, you know, don't employ this man, don't, but what they don't, what they, these people don't realize is that when Halle Berry and Scarlett Johansson, who are both women, by the way, uh, you know, when they when they say that they're going to make a movie and they come out and they announce that they're going to make a movie to play a transgender character, and there is a small but you know vicious, angry section of that community who comes out and pushes back, and then they step away from making the movie. That not only harms the entertainment business because that movie won't get made because without that star they're the reason the movie was financed and will get made so the entire movie doesn't get made but the crew and the and the and the surrounding cast and the ancillary people all around that of the movie goes on location include people from very rich diverse backgrounds including different religions spiritualities ethnicities sex, sexes genders and so it's a self-defeating prophecy. So like I always say, identity politics will devour itself. Okay. All right. So we are running out of time. Greg, I appreciate it. Where can we, where can we learn more about you? Uh, purchase your book when it comes out and also your podcast. Where's the best place we can go? Well, the, most of my content is uh, my video content, podcast content, and ebook and book content is on ThinkSpot, thinkspot.com. That's the main, my main platform. All my other video content is available and Everything Greg Ellis is at realgregellis.com. 
That's my website. And um, all the other platforms will have, you know, content being released all the time. And the book will be available for pre-order. The book, The Respondent, will be available for pre-order in August, in early August, and comes out on November 23rd. Well, Greg, you're fabulous. Thank you again, Chris, with some amazing questions. And I appreciate you both calling. Thank you very much, Chris. Pleasure to meet you. And Neil, thank you. All the very best with the show. All right. We'll and I'll, I'll text you and say, you. I need a co-host. Come on. All right. Sound good, Greg? All right. I'll take care. <laughs> you let me know. All right. Take thank care. Thank you, guys. I right, see you. Be bye. well. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank All you. Right. You're bye-bye. listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of Freedom from Addiction, Truth, Just Below the Surface, the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome from Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? I'm doing good, Neil. The topic for today is discussion from the International COVID Summit and the opinions of Dr. Robert Malone. Who is uh, Dr. Robert Malone? Few topics are more hotly discussed right now than anything and everything COVID related. Dr. Robert Malone shares the important science behind the current COVID vaccines that often gets left out of the discussion. He shares his perspectives on the one size fits all medical solutions being proposed today, government mandates and the fear-based messaging we are sold, which have massively impacted the state of the world. Dr. Malone is an internationally recognized scientist and one of the most qualified people to speak on this topic. He is an American virologist and immunologist and is a key architect of the mRNA vaccine technology, as well as the discoverer of in vitro and in vivo RNA transfection, which he was at the SALT um, Institute in 60, no, in 88. He has extensive research and developmental expertise and experience in the areas of vaccines, gene therapy, biodefense, immunology, discovery research, and clinical trials. His discoveries in the mRNA nonviral delivery systems are considered the key to the current COVID-19 vaccine tra- uh, strategies. Dr. Malone holds numerous fundamental domestic and foreign patents in the fields of gene delivery, gene formulations, and vaccines. This information is crucial to establish his credibility on such an important topic. It is astounding that people try to discredit doctors and scientists like Dr. Malone in a way to shut down any dissenting voice to the common mainstream narrative. The uh, FDA's vaccines and related biologic products Advisory Committee, VRBPAC, voted in September of 21 to authorize a third booster for the Pfizer BioNTech COVID shot uh, for commentary for people over the age of 
65 and other high-risk individuals. Keep in mind that the shot you actually receive is still a Pfizer shot that is under uh, EUA extended emergency use, not the fully approved commonary. While uh, these may be interchangeable, they are not identical from a legal uh, standpoint. Commonarity does not have EUA liability shielding, whereas the EUA Pfizer shot does. While the VRB PAC voted to uh, approve a booster for high risk individuals and those over the age 65, the CDC's expert advisory committee did not. The CDC advisory committee actually voted against recommending a booster for high risk individuals based on their profession or living conditions, stating that only those over the age 65 should be eligible for a booster. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, however, decided not to listen to her own experts. On September the 24th, she simply overruled the CDC's expert panel and went ahead with a recommendation to issue a booster dose for adults at high risk of infection due to their profession or living conditions. This is only the second time in CDC's history that its own ACIP advisory panel has been overruled. The FDA and CDC are increasingly beyond the law. They don't feel the need to comply in, in any way, even lip service really, with policies, procedures, legal requirements, or anything else. They pretty much are comfortable in doing whatever it is that they want to do, Malone said. I disagree that this is good policy at multiple levels. It is not good science. Malone touched briefly on the origin of SARS-CoV-2, which he says appears to have come from a lab. The information linking the genetic characteristics of the parent virus to what strongly appears to be a genetically engineered strain, this is all a smoking gun for gain of function research. It's increasingly difficult to come to any conclusion other than this originated in a laboratory and it originated in a laboratory that was funded by the NIH, NIAID, and that it was research performed in the Wuhan lab in China. So conflict of interest are problematic, such as the inherently conflicted nature of the CDC. The CDC has a mission to promote vaccines and vaccine uptake, Malone said, but also vaccine safety. These are in conflict and the agency is focused on vaccine promotion, not careful evaluation 
of vaccination safety data. Going forward, he says, the CDC should be split into two parts so that vaccine program promotion can be separated from their safety monitoring. The media and government officials continue to parrot the narrative that the pandemic is one of the unvaccinated, even though breakthrough cases or vaccine failures continue to rise. As of October the 12th, the CDC stated that, that 31,895 people who were fully injected and vaccinated against COVID-19 were hospitalized or died from COVID-19. The vaccines do not protect you from infection, virus replication and shedding. And just because you've had the jab doesn't mean you're not going to infect anybody else. He said, and further, he believes that by reducing symptoms of illness, while allowing viral replication to continue, the injections increase the likelihood that vaccinated people will become super spreaders of COVID-19. There's a wrinkle to this. A case can be made because the vaccines are providing protection from serious illness. So in general, if you get infected with Delta and you've been vaccinated, you have as much virus replication in your body as the unvaccinated person, but you're not going to feel sick. What does that translate to? Oh, I can just go to work, right? So if you think it through, the vaccinated are actually the ones that are creating the highest risk for everybody because they're still able to be infected replicate the virus at least at the level, if not higher than the unvaccinated. They're still shedding the virus all over the place, but they feel good. And so they are by definition, definition set up to be super spreaders. Malone believes that many people submitted to the shots because of an unspoken social contract. And that was, despite what you may have heard about the risk of some of these products and the fact that we admittedly did rush them, we're protecting your health. If you take these products, you will be safe. That's the social contract. Despite all these other concerns, you will be safe and you won't have to retake them. You'll be protected. People believe that they had a shield if they bought in and did this. The idea was self-sacrifice for the common good. If you submit to the experimental shots, you would not only be personally protected, but you would also protect your community and we could all recover and get back to a sense of normalcy, except people got the shots and normalcy has not returned. People have been harmed by vaccine-induced adverse events and deaths, and normal in the sense of the word prior to 2020 has not returned. Malone predicts that as the shots 
effectiveness wanes, we're going to see an increasing uh, caseload of vaccinated people still getting COVID-19 and being hospitalized and dying as a result. He puts the new peak at around January of February of the coming year. At that point and moving forward, he said, people will have to come to terms with the <coughs> fact that the vaccinated are still being hospitalized and dying. The social contract will be rendered a sundry. It will be destroyed. And then people are going to have to come to terms with the fact that they've been misled and lied to. One of the action items uh, Malone took home from the International COVID Summit is uh, one that we've been talking about for years. Optimize your vitamin D levels. Malone said, it is abundantly clear that many people are deficient in vitamin D and can benefit from increasing their levels. Data from grassroots health deaction studies suggests that the optimal level for health and disease prevention is between 60 and 80 nanograms per milliliter, where the cutoff for sufficiency appears to be at least 40. You've been given so much of a fear message, just fear and fear and fear. And frankly, that's in the interest of big media. That's how they sell their product. You don't have to be afraid. For children, unless your children have major pre-existing conditions, the probability of them getting death or severe disease uh, is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. It is tiny and frankly, particularly in male children, getting damage from the vaccine is higher than that. It's still a fraction of a percent. He's echoed the words of a growing number of doctors who are trying to get the word out about the importance of early treatment. If you have upper respiratory symptoms, first, don't just assume it's COVID-19. Get a test, and if it's positive, find a doctor who will give you early treatment, and the probability of you ending up in the hospital or dying is tiny. Malone is also part of the Global COVID Summit, which is an international alliance of doctors and scientists who are committed to speaking the truth to power the COVID pandemic research and treatment. They're amassing a fully curated body of information geared toward medical professionals, but everyone can view their data online. They believe that people are dying from COVID-19 due to being denied early life-saving treatment and have cre uh, created the declaration to give physicians back their rights to treat their patients and for patients to have the right to receive those treatments without fear of interference, retribution, or censorship by government, pharmacies, 
pharmaceutical corporations, and big tech. As of October the 14th, more than 12,000 doctors and scientists have signed the declaration. Because Malone and others who have spoken out against COVID-19 <coughs> propaganda are facing a hostile press that's attacking their reputations and demeaning them, they're fighting back in the best way they can by continuing to share the truth. By providing people with real information, Malone says, we're determined that we're going to break this wall of reinforcing the dominant narrative and whatever the government says. <coughs> so that's my program today um, with ideas from Dr. Robert Malone and discussions at the International COVID Summit. Uh, tell all your friends and neighbors and family to listen to this and other programs which give you truth just below the surface. My podcast is www.freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. Spell Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N, no caps, no spaces and go back in our uh, archives and pick up all the previous uh, podcasts that we've given you from experts who aren't afraid to tell the truth. Neil, thanks a lot. All right, Rip, when that was Freedom Prediction, Truth Does Below the Service of the Neil Haley Show, guys, take care. Mm -hmm.